0: Welcome to the Rad Awakenings Podcast. I'm Kay He. When was the last time you became aware of something deep, provocative, and uncomfortable? In these moments, we level up, in our work, our creativity, and most importantly, in our own heads. Each episode, our guests will describe their Rad Awakenings. The conversations are real, raw, and will share in both struggle and joy. Today's episode is a story of career agility, embracing change, and living with intention. Our guest, Lisa Shallot, has had numerous reinventions at a tiny firm you may have heard of called Goldman Sachs. Lisa started at Goldman in the highly specialized area of Japanese equities. Ten years later, she got asked to be the COO of Global Compliance, a role which at the service had little relevance to her prior experience and in a part of the industry which is often poo-pooed as being unsexy. Lisa has awesome advice on navigating career transitions. We often make the mistake of identifying our skills in super narrow contexts, such as our current job, and she emphasizes the importance of controlling our narratives when we embark on new opportunities. Lisa retired from Goldman after 20 years, but stepping away from the hum, as she calls it, is not as easy as it seems. Our listeners will be able to relate to the intensity of our work, meetings, events, staying late. How easily these can become internalized into our broader identities. We talked through Lisa's decision to retire, largely driven by family and seeing how quickly her two boys were growing. But retirement, even from Goldman, comes with its own set of challenges. Being out of the game can cause intense FOMO, and believe it or not, just because you're a Goldman partner, that fear of watching your bank account go down doesn't go away, showing how irrational the mind can get in the midst of change. We cover a lot of ground, and one of my favorite parts of the interview is Lisa's advice for new grads. She should know. After Goldman, she was the CMO of a high-growth startup, and has two Gen Z boys. You guys are in for a treat. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone. I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Lisa Shallet. Welcome.
1: Hi. Welcome. Thank you.
0: Lisa has been a friend and mentor of mine for a while, and I'm I'm really excited to see uh, to see where this goes. So. Why don't we start with your illustrious 20-year career at Goldman, which I know for our listeners is a path that many of them aspire to. And so we'd love to hear all about it.
1: I I thought you were going to end that sentence with, a long time, because that, that being 20 years in one place feels like a strange thing these days. But I will tell you that over my 20 years, I feel like I've had a bunch of different careers. So I was not one of those people who, as a young child, knew that I was desperate for Wall Street or destined for Wall Street uh, in any way. And it so happened that I stumbled onto Wall Street because I had this background in Japanese. Japanese. Having done a homestay when I was in high school, thanks to having won a scholarship, I had lived with a Japanese family. I subsequently majored in East Asian studies and ended up being fluent in Japanese. I lived and worked in Japan after college and found myself at, you know, business school. Still totally not even considering Wall Street and then kind of it found me because I initially signed up for a job uh, outside of Wall Street that was supposed to be very Japan-related at Bertelsmann in media, uh, having made Japanese game shows when I was working in Japan after college. And suddenly, for, for uh, uh, an interesting reason, my job changed and was no longer Japan-related Sometimes the absence of something you love makes you realize how much you love it. And while I was doing a job that for those in media was, was enviable, I missed the Japan thing and discovered by pure chance this job I had never heard of called Japanese equity sales.
0: I'm going to pause you. You you grew up in Long Island. Yes. Where, where did the interest in Japan Can you trace it back for us?
1: There was no interest in Japan. I happened to be selected, for no good reason, by my high school, Roslyn High School, Plain Old Public High School, to represent the school in competing for this scholarship. And this scholarship took two students from each state, and while in high school, between their junior and senior years of high school, so pretty young, and sent them to live with a Japanese family over that summer and then that family could send one of their kids to some other host family in the United States for a year and i had no business being selected for this in terms of any japan connection or interest or anything the scholarship was sponsored by the japanese diet the us senate and an exchange organization called youth for understanding but when approached for this the competitive juices got flowing and i said well Well, let's give this a try. But it was it was, you know, one of what would become many instances of something appearing on the radar that you never had considered before, but being willing to see where it went. And so that's that's kind of how that started after that summer where I basically played charades. I decided I wanted to one day come back and speak with that family in Japanese. So I uh, started taking Japanese at Harvard and became an East Asian studies major. By the time I graduated, Japan had, um, this will date me, purchased Rockefeller Center, Pebble Beach, etc. So I looked like, uh, you know, prescient, a genius, what have you. But really, it was a very small Uh, major that grew to huge once Japan became an economic superpower. And I happened to be for emotional reasons in the right place at the right time. But I ended up with this expertise in Japan, and that still was a pretty rare thing back then.
0: And you... Uh, fluent in Japanese.
1: I mean, I am a little rusty these days. I don't get that much of a chance to use it, although it's amazing how technology and media has proliferated all the ways in which I could keep up with it. But uh, yeah, I am, you know, I am pretty good.
0: And so, so Goldman Sachs Japan, Japanese equity trade. So
1: there is this job called Japanese equity sales that wants to pay me to talk to smart people about Japan all day. This was a dream job. And, you know, interestingly, although I I had an MBA, so I, I knew something about business, I didn't really know very much about markets. And I certainly had never been exposed to equity sales. And they said, oh, no, no, the stuff you bring understanding Japanese, understanding Japanese culture, having lived and worked in Japan, that's stuff that's really hard for us to teach you. This other stuff, we absolutely can teach you. And that began a 20-year career. So starting out as a Japanese equity salesperson, I spent the next 11 years at Goldman in the securities division, became a partner in the securities division. So eventually running the North America Japan Shares Desk. Then moved to Tokyo and ran the Japanese shares business globally. Then came back and ran international equity sales and trading. And that was all going really well. And it was cool to eventually become the head of the group I started in. And International Equities was like a great, a great family. It had its own trading floor, and it was a fascinating business. And then one day, I was completely thrown a curveball. I was called into the office of the then co-head of the Securities Division who said, Lisa, I've got a really interesting opportunity for you. And again, I was fully expecting that opportunity to be in the context of the Securities Division. And when he said I'd like you to become the Chief Operating Officer of Global Compliance, I almost fell over. I just, I didn't see it coming. And once that burst open my perspective to consider, okay, well, I guess if that's a possibility, anything's a possibility, I have to say that wouldn't have been the thing that I would have thought of would have been on offer. And so it was a very important opportunity to you know, do some self-reflection and really think creatively about what this opportunity could be, be open-minded about it, and think through that.
0: You said you were starting to be kind of hesitant about the narrowness of your career, so it just happened serendipitously?
1: No, no, no. I I wasn't um, starting to be hesitant about the narrowness of my career. I just was, without realizing it, Viewing my career at a a huge, you know, place like Goldman filled with different divisions and opportunities as being, you know, typically as people think that their careers are going to progress vertically. And, you know, that I would just hopefully keep moving up, but stay in the same lane. And so this kind of absolutely changed my perspective on what possibilities could be. And I hadn't realized that I was limiting my own perspective. So you know, so it was interesting.
0: Around what year was this?
1: This was in the winter of two thousand five.
0: Got it. So pre financial crisis.
1: Pre financial crisis, but around the time when the regulatory environment was starting to get much tighter.
0: And so was it? Was it a decision to have to to ch- take this new role, or it was, or was you know, it no G- Goldman
1: basically gives you you know a very short time to really think through what honestly, is a very big decision. I mean, walking away from 11 plus years of having invested in my reputation, in my expertise, in my relationships, all these things, that was that was a pretty big ask. But I've realized also that I tend to see things for opportunities that other people might not. So some people just immediately said, compliance? Are you kidding? And just dismissed it out of hand. However, it was a global role, managing many more people than I was already managing, and incredibly important to Goldman Sachs at a time when the regulatory environment was, you know, becoming even more front and center. And Of course i asked the question well you know where did this idea come from and the answer i got was very compelling it was when we think of the growth areas of the firm going forward they're going to be more on the control side than on the revenue side and we need someone who has understood how to manage a growth business to be dropped into these control functions and bring that knowledge with them. And once it was put that way, that was pretty cool. I I couldn't really resist that, and I said, you know, bring it on.
0: And that that's counterintuitive too to Wall Street thinking, right? Because being in in equity in the uh, capital markets business, you're kind of at the heart of the profit center of the business. And then the the reaction appears like compliance is kind of more of a like. Cost function, and it's it's like sleepier, whatever adjective, pejorative uh, adjective that, that that may be used, but but it's uh, it's interesting. So you so seeing it as a growth opportunity really changed your perspective on it.
1: Well, seeing it as any opportunity, but seeing my skills up until that point valued as something that could contribute in a new way to a division that, quite frankly, I mean, I couldn't compete on subject matter expertise, right, was really exciting. Knowing that it was an area that was going to be more and more important, knowing that my perspective was going to be different and therefore, you know, gave me an opportunity to potentially contribute. And, you know, steep learning curves are always good. So, yeah, I, I stepped away from everything that had uh, defined my career up until that time and made that leap.
0: So say more, so deep subject matter expertise. So you're, you're a senior, you're a partner, and you go into a new business with little subject matter expertise, right. a very senior role, probably a lot of people reporting into you. Sure. How do you bridge the the, the subject matter expertise gap?
1: So, you know, I think think people from Goldman are always wired to find ways to add value or justify their existence in any given role, and I was certainly no exception. So, yeah, I was super self-conscious about the fact that I was being dropped amongst some of the, you know, most brilliant compliance and legal minds that were probably on Wall Street. And I asked myself, I challenged myself to try to figure out how on earth – I could add value here. And so I did a lot of listening initially. And one of the big ahas that I realized was actually that my training in being in a revenue external client-facing business and learning all of the the skills that are required to develop the strong client relationships that ultimately lead to your being a trusted advisor and a go-to, you know that define business people in those areas just just weren't really taught in these control functions, and so you could have people who were technically expert in all of the rules and regulations, but didn't really think that they had clients. And the word wasn't even really used. And while they certainly had relationships with their colleagues, they covered the business areas and, and obviously I brought business expertise. The the same skills that I used every day and eventually taught every day in my prior role were were an opportunity here. And by virtue of just coming with a different a different perspective and a desire to add value, you know, I developed more confidence in my ability to find new insights to bring that could potentially change the way, you know, compliance was perceived and compliance, you know, further added value. And so it's funny, I challenged myself in the COO role to ensure that compliance was as well regarded as how it, for how it ran as a business as it was for its compliance expertise. And that was just a new a new mindset.
0: Did you feel in that transition any kind of sunk cost fallacy in the sense that I've invested, you know, 11 years in the Japanese market and in equity sales and now, you know, like these skills, these hard skills are no are no longer relevant to my day-to-day work?
1: You know, I was worried about that, but I I think I found two things. One is that this insight that people tend to define themselves and their skills by the context in which they've used them to date. And, you know, that's why when people are looking for new opportunities, they tend to go back to the old contexts or the old paths in which they have. And so I had to learn to separate the skills that I had from the way I had used them to that point. And I realized that you know, oh, well, this skill of client relationships actually could be relevant in this way, or this skill of running a business or thinking of things this way or making presentations that way could be very relevant in this context as well. And I've, I've always tried to coach people to think that way, lest they end up thinking too narrowly. And often many people will look at a resume and assume that that person's skills are are stuck in the context in which they've used them to date. So there was that. The oddest thing, though, happened next. One of my first, I guess, real jobs, having having settled into the role, was related to Japan. Because within two weeks of my joining, and I don't think it was because of me, the guy who was the head of compliance in Japan resigned. To go to another firm. So all of a sudden, my Japan skills were highly relevant and I was shipped out to go spend time both ensuring that, you know, everyone, most of whom I already had relationships with, you know, were, were fine and um, starting to think of a process for finding the replacement for that person. And so I actually made a bunch of different Japan trips and never expected those skills to, to come into play. Although, as I'm sure you know, you know, Japan is a highly regulated financial set of markets. And I I knew it would always be something that would be worth knowing about. But my gosh, here was an opportunity right from the outset to uh, leverage my Japan background.
0: I can so relate to to what you're saying, because when I after I left finance, I thought I was going to do something in finance or fintech. And then I had this moment where I kind of said to myself, you know what, I don't really want to do finance right now. And in my head, there was this debate. It's like, well, you, you have... 14 years of skills that you're throwing away and you're going to start from ground zero and whatever. I didn't even know what industry I was going to choose. And then very quickly I realized exactly what you said it's like the context the skills hadn't changed it's just the context by which uh, in which I use them had changed and if anything it made it made for this like really magical combination so being able to inspire others and being being very organized or thinking creatively to solve problems like those those were the skills not and what I thought it was like investing in hedge funds like that that was my skill that was the only thing thing that I New.
1: It's a really interesting thing, but people can fall into you know that that trap. And I think what's really important is to both see yourself in the skills that you have, not the context. Think about other contexts, but also you know realize that you have to own the story uh, and the way that you tell it when you're asking someone to make that leap along with you. Because typically, people will default to the story of oh here. Uh, is what this person has done before, and therefore that's what they will always do.
0: Say more about that. How do you own the story when you're making these kind of switches?
1: Uh, You have to decide how you frame what your skills are and do so in a way that not only explains how you've used them to date, so the experience that you've had, but help someone get to the point of seeing, well, actually these skills are very useful in these ways, in these other contexts too. And you can't expect the other person necessarily to make that leap. It's too easy not to. But you will miss opportunities if you don't make the effort to try and provide the framing and do so very proactively.
0: That's that's something that I see a lot with people in finance and other more traditional corporate fields that are trying to make the, the leap into startups is that if you take say, equity sales and trading, there's nothing close at a startup that translates into, well, first of all, equity sales. Yes, there's sales, but it's typically more enterprise sales or technology sales. So there's no Rolodex. And time and time again, I get the question from from people, well, what job should I take at a startup? Because I was a banker, I was a salesperson, I was a trader. And this this uh, concept of, of owning your story and framing your narrative, I never thought about it that way. But the advice I would always give to people is understand what the jobs are that you're trying to apply for. And then think about like kind of distill your work down to the corest, like the, the, the true building blocks of what you were doing and then map them onto those different skills, which I know as we talk through your numerous career reinventions, we'll see that again and again, but, um, maybe a segue to, um, so then there was another reinvention at, at Goldman.
1: Well, I should just say those four and a half years from 2006 to 2010, for any historians in your audience, would have coincided with some very interesting events. Yes. So Bear Stearns, Lehman, becoming bank holding company, all all of these things that were, you know, plaguing Wall Street and in truth, making the control Areas in the house, the new growth businesses, um, and so I had a front row seat to all of that. And um, you know, I, I think I think my perspective as part of obviously a very talented team, you know, I think I think helped was it was an addition to the mix. And uh, I, I'm I'm grateful for that experience. You know, I will say that probably the thing I learned most in that role I never would have predicted which is the ability to ask really smart questions. Now, hopefully people who know me feel that that's true, but when you are surrounded day by day with a former prosecutor, a former defense attorney, a former CIA, a former FBI, people who have been trained in the art of asking smart questions and seeing things, three derivatives out, and anticipating risks, like I got pretty good at that, and I think that that was such a a fortunate result. Of having made that that leap, that you know, maybe wouldn't have been as well developed if I hadn't had that experience.
0: And the serendipity of it, I uh, personally, the financial crisis was the best thing that happened to me professionally. I was earlier in my career the, than you were, so I had less to lose in terms of you know deferred stock and things like that. But from a learning perspective, there was no better way to learn the intricate. Nature and intertwined nature of the global financial system by being there during 2008, 2009. I probably aged by uh, yes, I think we all did <laughs> by uh, a few too many years. But um, it really was, and especially if you if you center around learning, then it was it was a gift.
1: Uh, ab- absolutely, and you know it's funny when you when you contemplate making a change you know, a change is a new platform. And there are a lot of things that sometimes people don't see. If you're lucky, you see. And sometimes people w- with great intentions give you lots of advice saying, oh, no, that sounds crazy. But you say, you say, wait a second, if I'm the chief operating officer of global compliance, I have an opportunity to learn about everything every business of the firm. Compliance is one of those divisions, a lot of control functions are, that touches every business of the firm in every location, in every permutation. And that's a very valuable building block in and of itself for anything that you would do afterwards in addition to all the other things that were interesting. So so next, Curve.
0: Did you talk, because one thing that a lot of our listeners struggle with is the perception of their peers. Mm-hmm. And so... In going from kind of a revenue generating to like, like I don't know, maybe as an outsider, I would like compliance. Like that's the least sexy Wall Street business, especially in two thousand and five. How did you? A did you feel that? And and if so, how did you kind of could talk to yourself to to navigate those feelings?
1: That was probably the hardest thing to get over. You know, one was just stepping away from years of expertise and and what would happen to me would I flail and the other was you know this notion of revenue versus non-revenue and and I have really tried unsuccessfully to this date to try to think of a better set of descriptors because I certainly can can appreciate quite viscerally that Anyone who is in a, one of these supposed revenue roles could not generate revenue without all of these supposedly non-revenue functions. Yeah. And, the story um, again. You, you know, I, I just think that there needs to be a, a better word. You know, I've heard cost center. Goldman had a really funny word for all of these non-revenue, in, in air quote, divisions. They call them the federation. <laughs> Which you know, I guess was a great distraction because it led people down, you, you know, these these Star Trek yeah. uh, jokes and such. <laughs> but I, I haven't found a better a better term yet. But yeah, I was I was worried about that. I was really worried about that, and so it just made me that much more compelled to differentiate myself and demonstrate that I was adding value.
0: So third third transition.
1: The the distinction that I will make here is that this time I actually raised my hand. So in the context of COO of Compliance, that sort of came and found me. I said okay. And then over the course of those four and a half years, I also was given COO responsibilities for legal, COO responsibilities for internal audit. So my my job kept growing because those are separate areas at Goldman, and I was the Along with the CFO of those divisions who worked for me, the one common link across them, and you know, I think what I started to learn at that point was kind of a an, an appreciation for agility, and you know, I think confidence is such an important topic and how people get confidence, how much perception of peers plays into one's own self-confidence. And I think what I learned from having taken that leap and allowing myself to be dropped into an area where you could say I was unlikely to be able to add value or was challenged, it wasn't obvious, and then to do that two more times, I mean, drop an MBA in a legal department, it wasn't exactly a recipe for, you know, a warm welcome and success, I gained an appreciation for agility. And I realized that agility is a thing. And I learned from challenging myself multiple times over and taking on completely new areas and steep learning curves that maybe I was good at that. And that enabled me to really be my own source of self-confidence. And I think if you can get to that point, Sure, you know, your perception of your peers is important to a degree, but if if you have a sense as to what you're aiming for and you have a sense as to what is going to be most challenging for you and and keep, you know, raising the bar, there are, there are so many ways that aren't obvious to the the very basic peer comparisons that might, you know, catapult your career in a way. And so With that confidence, I decided after four and a half years that I was getting a little bored, and I don't mix well with bored, and raised my hand and went to the president of the firm and said, you know, if I've been able to do these things, many of which were undesirable things, I want to know what's keeping you up at night now. Give me that challenge.
0: You actually said what's keeping... Like what's keeping you? That's like what's the
1: next thing that's keeping you up at night? And I feel like I want to take that on. And so it really wasn't a long hesitation for him to say this was in you know February March of 2010 that the reputation of the firm. Now at that point, just to timestamp it, Goldman was still the hero of the financial crisis, still getting credit for having successfully navigated the crisis and. He said, I need you to come into the executive office, become the head of brand marketing, and just to make sure you focus on it, because we haven't had someone focus on it before, we're going to add and digital strategy to your title. So head of brand marketing and digital strategy. There's some external component that seems to matter now that hasn't mattered before goldman never used the word brand really never spoke about its brand wasn't a consumer brand didn't have its logo on the building didn't seek out to be talked about by you know the mass public didn't advertise or do anything because there weren't products and services that that brought goldman down that path he said I, I I want you to focus on this and you know just 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 figure out what that's going to be and that was a pretty uncertain nebulous opportunity, but it, it just it just felt very compelling to me. Now there aren't many people who have gone from compliance legal audit to marketing.
0: Don't forget Japanese equity sales. <laughs> it's,
1: and that too. And and so it's it's kind of it was kind of unusual and I liked the perverseness of that. But I never would have been able to predict that a week and a half after I started in that role the SEC filed fraud charges against Goldman, and what initially was "Hey, you know what? Figure this out" suddenly became a crisis and brand case study for the ages. And so, you know, that ended up being four years of a fascinating experience.
0: So, the key to career growth is move into the department that's about to have its crisis.
1: Well, maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a good uh, a, a, good, a good predictor mine. for that. Who knows? But. Uh, I, I I think I think it's just, you know, be open minded and take smart risks. You know, if someone believes in you and wants to offer you an opportunity, it's not as risky as if you just show up and say, hey, give me this. And so that has to count for something.
0: Did you second guess yourself in any of these transitions? Like once you had made the switch,
1: you know, it's funny. I talk with people about this kind of topic a lot now. Now I'm I'm like a magnet for people who are presented with, or ask for, or contemplate, um, you know, making changes. And you know, as I as I said, there there comes a point at which the healthiest way to deal with it is to really give yourself a fixed period of time to think. Okay, what's my list of opportunities here and really think expansively about that and creatively about that and then what are the things I most fear and then you know learn as much as I can about those you know hit the timer at the deadline and either take the leap or don't take the leap but decide quickly because long time cycles for those decisions just don't don't make them make them worse not better they make you look less committed and um, they make the people who offered them to you kind of scratch their heads and worry whether their belief was in the right person.
0: And what were some of the fears around transitioning into the CMO and branding role?
1: Well, i had never worked in the executive office before. Brand marketing had been positioned under what at Goldman was uh, called like media relations. And so it had to be taken out from someone else's area, um, another partner's area, and made into its own space. So there was a little bit of, you know, political stuff that I was Potentially um, exposed to without without realizing it by moving into the role. And look, I wasn't a veteran marketer, so I, I fortunately had you know this this very small team of of amazing people. In particular, um, uh, the person who ultimately succeeded me in the role once I retired was was someone who had a lot of marketing experience. But again, I found myself in a situation where I had to imagine how I could be different how i could bring insights and how i could add value and here i got lucky i was confident i would be able to do those things but the luck was i think a lot of people get distracted by the fact that suddenly it was you know financial crisis goldman intently intensely focused gone gone haywire but it happened to be a moment when although although it feels weird to think this when social and digital channels were first emerging, when suddenly everything that had not been measurable and was very much gut instinct or or kind of made up formulas became quantifiable. And therefore I was on this level playing field. So uh, even a veteran marketer would have to learn completely new things. And I would have to learn completely new things. And you know what? I realized, because I can frame this however I want to keep myself sane, the playing field wasn't level because marketing had never looked more like a trading floor. And so you had more data than you knew what to imagine. You had dashboards and analytics and ability to measure a lot of things and you had to figure out how to process that. And you had completely new channels that everybody had to learn at the same time. I mean, you know, the notion that a brand would use Twitter was still kind of a crazy thought at that time. And there were all sorts of compliance reasons why you couldn't have an unsurveillable two-way platform. I mean, there were all sorts of issues. LinkedIn was just kind of emerging and hadn't yet really developed company pages back then. You know, a YouTube channel for Goldman? Like, these things were just foreign to everyone, and that was tremendously energizing. And I think by virtue of not having any legacy or ego and embracing the opportunity to learn and feeling oddly a comfort level with a lot of the quantification of things that had happened, I just wanted to soak it all in and, and was quick to realize that I needed to learn from the people who were at the cutting edge. And those people were entrepreneurs who were disrupting marketing and advertising as they had existed to date. And so one of my MOs was to invite those folks in and, you know, on a regular basis, weekly, just just really try to talk with them. And I realized in that context that, one, I could learn a lot. Two, I potentially could be a customer, and having Goldman as your customer was no small thing, so there was a potential win-win there. But that was a forum in which my weird background would often come into play because I could help them with their business plan. I could help them with their pitch. I could think through, you know, how they needed to sell their product and, and how they needed to grow. And so, so many great conversations came from that and taught me a lot about the value that I potentially could add and planted the seeds for other things that I would ultimately become interested in. And, and, and I will say that the energy, the positive energy, of dealing with those kinds of folks was such a needed contrast to a lot of the negative energy and overhang of crisis in general, but a regulatory environment that was quite difficult for Wall Street.
0: Did your peers question why you were spending time with entrepreneurs?
1: No. I mean, I didn't really have peers that were marketing people. Like, no one was really more marketing expert than me and my team, which is unusual because, as I said, Goldman hadn't hadn't had to do those kinds of activities. I did get beaten up pretty well for suggesting that we spend money on advertising, for proposing an advertising campaign, for targeting the public who really wasn't Goldman's customer, and all of these things that had not been done before.
0: Got it. I, I asked because when I was in the process of leaving BlackRock, I had similar, just lots of interactions with entrepreneurs. And I was doing it not wearing my professional hat, but I was so energized by that community. And my peers were kind of like, well, they can't help you today, like right now. They can't help the firm right now, which. Which is wrong? They could, but there was that perception that, like, why plant a seed that you're going to cultivate in five, ten years? Like, do something that's going to make a difference today. And so I felt that a lot, but kind of like you, and, and we'll we'll get to the kind of the tipping point or the next chapter for you. That was one of them to see to feel that energy of entrepreneurs around me to get give me the the push to to make a change.
1: Yeah. Look, I think it's it's really it's really liberating when you are in a role where you don't have to go with the mindset of kind of justifying or protecting what's been done to date. You know, a lot of marketers who were my peers at other firms were really having to think through and justify whether they moved the budget from TV to digital. Like, I didn't have that problem because Goldman had never really done TV. I had to make the case for doing any of these things at all and therefore could be much more open-minded. And I think that taught me a lot about how big companies really need to engage in these dialogues because that's where a lot of the innovation is happening. And that's where I credit my um, education to all of those really smart people that I talked to and in many cases got to partner with.
0: Maybe switching gears slightly, but staying at Goldman, 11 years into your career, you become a partner. Is that what you, is it, Did I hear you correctly? Huh,
1: I have to do the math here. No, it wasn't 11 years. I, I joined Goldman in... 95, again, as an experienced hire, and um, made partner in 2002.
0: Okay, 95, so seven years. Yeah. Uh, so seven years, you're you're at the kind of pinnacle of American capitalism <laughs> uh, in terms of kind of- From, from that, the outside, what, maybe. From what that symbolizes. Uh-huh. I wonder, when when you thought at some point in your career, probably many points in your career, there was the aspiration that was one of the goals that you wanted to achieve. How did becoming a partner versus what you perceived like the the anticipation versus the realized uh, experience of partner. like how did those two compare
1: I say this in all honesty but I was pretty clueless and I, I think that it is a good lesson for the need for mentors early on with whom to have you know conversations about career advancement and what it what it should be I kind of came in every day just wanting to do my best and I tended to measure myself against my own standard that I just kept n- notching up higher, higher, higher with every accomplishment. And I-, I was, I was very lucky to be around like just a tremendously talented group of people who were also a source of energy and challenge for me. When you're, when you're with, you know, people that you really respect who are awesome at what they do, it just makes you that much more awesome. And I was surprised. Both times I was promoted. I was surprised when I was promoted to managing director, and I was surprised when I was promoted to partner. I just didn't see it coming. I didn't know to expect it, but I always tried to learn from, you know, those leaders that I, I respected the most and, you know, try to bring it the same way. And then one day I got called in and told I was a managing director and was shocked and thrilled. And two years later was, you know, in, in the room receiving a phone call from Hank Paulson saying that I had made partner and I, I didn't see it coming.
0: That's like atypical. It though. seems
1: weird, right? But, I, but I, I think those were still the days when these processes were not quite as transparent and as openly talked about, you know, you, you didn't campaign to become, or maybe some people did, I don't know. But look, I think, I think all of these processes have become much more intricate and and complicated. And Goldman's is certainly a complicated one now on the other side of it, um, or having led those processes. I, I understand that better, but really like, other than do your best for the most part and, and build your network, there really isn't a whole lot you can do to campaign. You want to let people know if that's an aspiration of yours. So I think the process nowadays has become a lot more openly discussed, a lot more transparent. And people want to know things I didn't even know to ask about. People want to know, am I being in Goldman uh, parlance cross Am I being considered? And I never even knew that was going on. So I don't know if that makes me sound silly or naive or what, but I think these are different times. So I didn't really see those coming, but wow, what an honor.
0: Yeah. Would you describe yourself as competitive?
1: Very, but mostly competitive with with myself and measuring myself in terms of, you know, how well I was doing for my clients, how well I was doing for Goldman Sachs. And, you know, those things worked.
0: Wow. And so, so take us to so you retired a few years ago. Yes. Walk us through the decision to retire and, and what you're doing now.
1: So, that decision was in some ways really easy and in many ways, so hard. I think the hardest part was just leaving, you know, the family that is a place you've been at, at tw- you know, for 20 years and and such a special place. And by virtue of having, you know, the odd experience of having worked in five different areas of the firm in two different regions, I mean, my family was, was pretty well extended. And it was really hard to imagine not having that every day. But I've thought a lot about this process. I think that you go into this period of what I call an if, and then a period of what I call a when. And I think the if period, sometimes can be catalyzed by some sort of life event. Whether you're, you're a mother or a father, decide that you aren't spending enough time with your family or your kids are teenagers and you realize you need to be home more or they're newborn and you want to spend more time with them or whatever it is or, you know, unfortunately you may have, you know, an, an illness or something in your family or a change in circumstance or whatever it might be that that is one of those moments to pause and say, like, wait a second. Am I, am I, am I happy? That's the if moment? No, the the if moment is this whole process of just thinking about, should I?
0: Yeah, okay.
1: Um, And so in my case, I tend to embrace change, having now had a track record of doing that. So my question was, should I change to a different role? Once I, once after four years in the brand role, I felt... One, I wanted to get out of the way. You know, I had a tremendously talented deputy who could who could take it on. And two, like, I felt like the value that I uniquely could add had been added. Getting to the point where Goldman considered it normal to do advertising and, and the discussion was not around do it, but around what's the next campaign wasn't as interesting to me as some other things. So did I want to walk into the president's office again, raise my hand since I had finally learned how to do that and say, what's keeping you up at night? bring it on. But I knew that I loved the media and marketing space. I had really fallen in love with it. And I especially loved all of the innovation that was taking place from my conversation with entrepreneurs. So I knew that I wanted my next role professionally to be about that. And I really didn't see another way at Goldman to do it better than I had had. And so I kind of was getting used to the notion that maybe my next thing would be outside for a change so on the professional side there was that going on I still didn't know what that thing would be and in fact a lot of people want you to think that before you make a change you should know exactly what you're going to which getting back to our earlier point pretty much guarantees that you're going to do what you've done before so that's where people's narrow thinking about their skill sets and contexts leads them to say okay well I'm really good at this in this way and I'm going to leave for whatever reason but end up Going back to what they know, it's much harder and the peer pressure is much more intense when you say, well, I don't possibly have enough time to do the kind of exploration that I need to do of myself and opportunities while I'm still doing the best I can sprinting at Goldman every day. You know, you don't want to leave on a bad note. You don't want to sag. You know, you don't want to not try to do your best every day. But that takes a ton of energy. There's no way you could carve out the bandwidth to properly think what to do next. So, like, it's like stepping off a cliff. I mean, you've experienced this, and people think you're crazy. Especially, like, if you're a managing director at BlackRock or a partner at Goldman. It's like, what else is there? Why aren't you satisfied? Or, the worst, the most pernicious you're never going to find anything as good as this. And that's scary. If you allow yourself to hear those voices, that's super scary. But then something pulls at you and you know that that there's something else and you have to figure out what that is and you have to give yourself time to find what that is, even though you know that's going to be profoundly uncomfortable. And as much as you think it's going to be uncomfortable before you do it, wow, is it uncomfortable, as, as I'm sure we've both learned. But on the personal side, the thing that was pulling me the most was that I kind of noticed that um, I have two sons. They're uh, both teenagers. And at the time, this was in um, 2014, my older son was just finishing the first half of his uh, sophomore year in high school, my younger son was finishing you know, middle school, and I somehow had this moment where a clock appeared in my head, started to tick backwards from when they would both disappear and go off to college, and I wouldn't have been there. And that time became so precious in a way that, oddly, as a working mom, I didn't feel as much when they were first born. Um, and I see a lot of both moms and dads, especially working moms, like feel really pulled to when y- you know the the your your, you know your your kid is just born. I mean, think about all the wonderful you know time you're having right now, having more time that you're in control of. But I didn't. I was fine with that. I had a good system. I had I had caretakers that I that I trusted from uh, from among family and and uh, and nannies and such. And I was lucky enough to have those. And felt like I could go and be a better mom by being myself at work. But somehow, when my kids got into high school, it changed, and I just felt like time was ticking away. And if I kept my head down and worked the way that. I liked to work at Goldman. Um, My husband would always say to me, can't you leave earlier? How senior do you have to be such that you don't have to do that PowerPoint anymore? And, you know, you just get used to a certain level of of quality as to to what you need to bring. And I just didn't want to miss that. And as I was thinking about that in my if stage, you know, I kind of got an, an unfortunate kick in the pants by the sudden passing away of my dad. And once that happened... You know, if I was already starting to pause and look at life, which is really hard to pull yourself out of and do, okay, like time out, big time out, what is going on here and what kind of life am I living and how am I going to feel about that if, God forbid, you know, the same fate befalls me at some point and you get yanked out of your existence. And so it's unfortunate when you have that time created for from a, a tragic reason, but it's it, the silver lining, if you need to look for one, is that, it's hard to otherwise extract yourself from the day-to-day and the momentum and the zone and the flow of... Uh, Shonda Rhimes has this amazing TED Talk where she describes the hum. And and it, it, it's so it's so relevant for anyone who's been on a trading floor before. You know, it's just like you... It's hard to detach yourself. You get kind of addicted to it. And to have a life moment just just suddenly, you know, unplug you, I guess, is the equivalent, and make you think... Am I leading the life that I want to lead? How precious is time? And am I, am I appropriately respecting that, knowing that I won't get that time back? And when I thought about my, my father, who was you know a beloved OBGYN and a very respected doctor, he also was a workaholic. And often, for far more noble reasons than, you know, working in an investment bank, would get called out to deliver someone's baby, you know, in the middle of carving the Thanksgiving turkey or in the middle of some other thing that, you know, as frustrating as it was, was always important to the family but inferior to this this very important mission he was on. But I realized that as a teenager, I didn't really get to hang out with him very much. And I didn't really have conversations about life. I mean, he was a tremendous role model and I learned so much from him, but I didn't want that to be me. And I was so on the path for that to be me and really decided to change it up. And that's when my my if became a when. So professionally, I was already wandering mentally and personally these things all kind of gelled and I, I I decided to make it a now.
0: I love the concept of the timeout and the reflection questions. What advice would you give someone who is in who's feeling that buzz, whose career is ascending, who's whatever age, about fine creating the space to, for for such a timeout or for such reflection?
1: You know, there is so much that I've learned now on the other side of things that I wish I could have done differently. Now, not a lot of things. I mean, my gosh, I had a great career, and, and, and I feel so fortunate for that. But definitely some things that I could have thought about more. And so my my answer to your question is to make sure that you set in your calendar a date to do that every year. Maybe you want to do that twice a year, where, you know, if you're lucky enough not to have it done to you with some sort of, you know, awful life-interrupting event, interrupt yourself and put that date in the calendar. Be religious about it, and that's when you take a step back and you you ask yourself questions. Maybe you decide the questions in advance. Maybe you do it with a friend. I'm a big believer in sanity buddies, and you've been a tremendous one for me, but Make sure that you commit to doing your own timeout. You don't want to do them too frequently because you'll drive yourself crazy. Twice a year is probably max. But do them and make sure you're asking yourself questions about, is this the life I want to lead? Is this is this the way I want to interact with the important relationships in my life? Is this the way I want to pursue other interests or hobbies or learnings apart from work? Because work takes up so much of your mental capacity without you even realizing it. And so I wish I had done that better. And that's what I that's what I advise people to do so they have more control over that process. And you know what? That checkpoint may check all the boxes and tell you I love what I'm doing. I want to keep doing this. You know, I want to strive for this. I want to strive for that or whatever it might be. Or like, yeah, I'm good back to the hum. And that's great. But it's important that you decide those things rather than let those things happen to you. And, you know, I would catch myself, even while I was still there, I was self-aware enough to catch myself kind of like that song from Rent, you know, 525,600 minutes, where they refer to, you know, counting time in different ways. And I would find that often I didn't even know what month it was. Like I was so in the zone. I mean, obviously I, I was relating to people. It wasn't like I was walking around like I was a zombie, but, but if you happen to like tap me on the shoulder and say like, what month is it? I might not know. Yeah. And like, sometimes I'd be super way off in terms of seasons <laughs> to a, to a point that would scare me, but scaring me was a good, you know, kind of reminder for my own self-awareness. But I would, I would sometimes have a moment like I'd finish a a contact lens box and I'd be like, holy shit, a month has gone by. Now, I'm sure a lot of great things happened during that month and they were all worthy of spending time on, but like, wait a second, where did that month go? And so I was already starting to feel those kinds of ways in which I didn't have as much control over my time as I wished. So that's why in retrospect, like that would be something... That if I if I were doing it all over again, I wouldn't change much, but I try to be more disciplined about those checkpoints.
0: Mm-hmm. I can I mean I can relate. I never ask myself any questions about what I was why I was doing what I was doing, and I, I say the period from twenty five age twenty five to thirty three like. I could have been 26 years old or I could have been 35 years old. I really didn't know the difference because I was in, in, in that buzz and and just like spending the time now, now I'm like the opposite. I, I do like daily check-ins with myself and like write myself like notes about how I'm feeling, but uh, I've probably gone, gone in the other uh, extreme. But I think that that's, that's really powerful and, you know we we are so good. We can get to like inbox zero, and we can 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 get to. I was doing like twenty two meetings in in a week. I would do. I would brag about. I'd call it double breakfast, or I'd meet someone at six, and then I'd meet someone at seven thirty. And it's just like what the fuck, like that's that's like that's fine. And and there, there's there's time to do that, and there's reasons to do that. But if you're just doing it without asking yourself, like, why am I eating breakfast twice in in one day?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. Uh, You you get this self-awareness once you take yourself out of it. And that becomes a great kind of... Regulator, that for some reason you mute those voices when you're in it because you convince yourself that you love it so much, and and you do. You get a lot of your identity from it. You you're learning all the time. I mean, it, it, it's it's tremendously stimulating. But to your example, it's easy to do things that really, when you look back on it with with sort of a distance, feel like you were practicing an extreme sport and you the problem is that you think that that extreme sport is normal and so you leave that environment you've done it i've done it others have done it and you're wholly unprepared for life at a normal speed because you've thought normal was like 200 miles an hour and nobody prepares you for that jarring adjustment but you know i think i think again to your example you confuse sometimes Being busy with being productive, right? And if your schedule is always full, and you're doing double breakfasts, and you're like not going to the bathroom, and you're not eating, and you're just you're just getting so much done.
0: You know my days. (laughs) You know you
1: you can really not uh, realize that you're living your life very reactively, responsively, because you're always thinking about some client somewhere, right? And you're you're not going to be not responsive, but you've you've sort of abdicated your own control to do things proactively and it's like a struggle to ensure that you're making sure you get your things done. The reason you're doing the double breakfasts and the the 15 meetings is because you're meeting everyone else's replies and requests as much as you're trying to get the stuff that you know you need to do done and that's like a constant competition that now um, knowing what I know now I would you know advise people to be so much more selective about because the opportunity to have time to think, the opportunity to be more proactive and selective about what you do with your time is much more important than the feeling of productivity that you get from going back to back nonstop.
0: There's a, I think it's a Tim Ferriss quote. It said, uh, being busy is the ultimate form of laziness.
1: Very interesting.
0: And it, it, it's, it's a great quote, it, especially as, as knowledge workers, like you're supposed to be thinking. Right. You're supposed to be using your knowledge, not like scheduling things like back the back and forth on right. email. And, and
1: and I think you fool yourself that you're thinking somehow in these meetings. And you know, the more senior you get, the more value there is in the time that you have to think and think in the big picture and use those thoughts to inspire, bring insights and and, and, and lead. And who schedules time to think? You know, no one wants to schedule, unscheduled time. I've tried all sorts of ways over the course of my career to do that. I would tell, you know, my assistant when I had one to, okay, you know, put in a buffer yeah. and make that, you know, non-negotiable. And sure enough, I'd look at that buffer President and treat calls. it as treat it as found time the moment someone came in with a last-minute request. Oh, well, I'll give you half my buffer, and then all of a sudden you've traded it all away. So when are you thinking? Like, and when are times that life how connected we are and online all the time give us moments when we're when we're forced to be unplugged you know it used to be airplanes yep. maybe i it still was, don't buy the wi-fi maybe it was <laughs> my <cheap> commute <laughs> um but like the shower yeah. y- you know the bathroom like when do you have those moments so you have to schedule them and somehow i guess we got by yeah. but i think they're probably healthier Healthier ways to do it. Those strategies certainly don't work in the real world because, yes, people do think you're crazy and you run, you run yourself ragged.
0: So now you're transitioning into uh, an open field uh, of entrepreneurship and working with all different types of people. One specific question, though, is how have you navigated so much opportunity and openness? Or, you know, as some, uh, someone who probably has always had some kind of marching orders. For, you know, 20 years, presumably. How do you shift into this like mindset of openness and, and unstructured time?
1: You know, I think I, first of all, made sure to gather around me a few what I call sanity buddies, people that I trusted to be honest with me, people that may have been in that situation ahead of me, so they kind of knew knew the road and the, the landscape. Other retired Goldman partners have been tremendously generous with their time and and had a lot of advice that, yeah. you know, it's not that the Goldman experience is so unique, but there are certain aspects about stepping off a very fast-moving ship that others who have done it can give you some special insights into. You know, nothing, nothing really prepared me for just what a big adjustment that was going to be. So I set up my sanity buddies such that when I felt that inevitable, what have I done, panic, I could reach out to one of them. Advice from one of them in particular was so helpful. It was come up with a mantra. Whenever you feel, recognize the feeling, when you feel that what have I done feeling of fear and make sure that you've got your mantra there to go to. So kind of have a system or process for when you recognize that feeling. And that worked tremendously. Hers was you are where you're supposed to be. And I liked that one. So I adopted that. I have since coached people on lots of different mantras of their own. And it works because you you kind of have something to counterbalance that that rising feeling of, oh my goodness. And fortunately that didn't happen so much. I think though the other thing is to keep reminding yourself that it's the journey and you've signed on to experiment and explore and and that's the point and so it's supposed to be uncomfortable and if it's not uncomfortable you're not learning and so i would always kind of remind myself of that i think the bigger issue Aside from you know adjusting to life not at the pace of an extreme sport and not everything is about productivity or there are different definitions of productivity or not everything's urgent, my gosh, how to unwire the feeling like everything is urgent, which uh, you know Goldman definitely wired into me in a good way y- you know is just is just allowing yourself time to be uncomfortable and being Lonely was unexpected. So it's one thing to feel very vulnerable and, you know, uncomfortable. I can get, I can get my head around that. Okay, uh, that, that's, that's the, the, the field I've chosen now. But, you know, I didn't realize I live in the suburbs. I didn't realize that, oh my gosh, from all these years of working, I didn't really know anyone in the suburbs. My kids happen to go to private school and as a result, you know, the community is very dispersed. It's not like you go and do little league with the same people and and, and all of that, which many people have, and that's a that's a tremendous source of support when you make a change, whether you choose it or it's forced upon you. And so I just didn't know what to do with myself. So yes, I would give myself time to think and I love that. I would give myself time to read, I would have opportunities to to be smarter about everything I had time to take in lots of information that before I didn't have as much before. But who am I going to hang out with? You you know, all the people that I knew were were working. And so it, it took me a while to adjust to Finding the equivalent of that team culture that I had loved so much at uh, at Goldman, and I think I I still haven't completely cracked it.
0: Yeah, well, I think there's a human side to that too, where I was actually texting this with a friend today. It's a it's a quote from um, the philosopher Pascal that says that the source of all of human beings' problems is the inability to be alone for fifteen minutes, or stems from the inability to be alone for fifteen minutes, which is like whoa. <laughs>
1: I, you know that that is a very interesting one. You also could end that sentence with the the inability to not look at your phone, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, or something like that. But you you want connectivity. You want like it. What do you what do you do with yourself? Yeah. And it's funny because when you're even when you're in the zone and somehow managing to be super efficient about everything in your life because you're leading the kind of life you are. What's the thing you wish for? Like I used to have this fantasy that I could stop time. And nobody could move but me. Yeah. And if I, like, I wouldn't necessarily, like, I certainly wouldn't pull any pranks. I mean, I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't have weird thoughts like that. But i was just like, I just want it all to stop. Yeah. So I have time to think clearly. Yeah. And, you know, that was, that was the fantasy. Yeah. And then I find myself sort of in that fantasy. And it's, it's freaky. You don't know what to do with yourself. Yeah. And that is scary as hell.
0: Talk to me, uh, when we were exchanging emails prior to this, We, we were um, in one of your emails, you were talking about different kinds of fear or different flavors of fear. And I've, as you know, fear is one of my favorite topics yeah. these days. But I actually wrote them down. There was FOMO. Yeah. There was uh, fear, of this, and this was like the inner monologue talking. There was uh, the fear of not having an income or not, not producing any income. The fear of um, losing your edge or becoming irrelevant. And so I want to start with the first one, or the second one actually being the fear of not having income, which is... Without making any assumptions other than Goldman Sachs uh, retired partners, uh, I just want to share with our listeners that even Goldman Sachs retired partners have the fear of money. <laughs> of of, maybe, of maybe not the pre-IPO <laughs> partners. But talk to me a little bit about the the FOMO, the relevance, and, and the edge, and how how they manifest in your mind.
1: Well, we could talk about money for a second yeah, okay. because you know I it. I had always prided myself on feeling like I knew what my enough point was. And I think the crisis, when everyone saw their comp reduced to what it was like 10 years before, whatever you think of Wall Street comp, putting that aside, I know your audience gets it. I think it's somehow easier in conversations that I've had anecdotally for women to come up with a an enough point beyond which, you know, everything else is gravy. And I felt in my conversation with men all these years that they just keep ratcheting up the enough point because there's always an object that they see someone else having that wasn't my game and i'm not saying that most people are are like that but i think that the notion of enough is really hard but even if you had gotten to an enough and i was very lucky to be able to leave on my terms with you know the the means Mm -hmm. to not have to immediately take a next job. And you know, not not a lot of people have that optionality. And I think, you know, it's funny for all the notions that people have about retirement, which is you should, you know, hopefully work until you're 80 and then start living. Yeah. You know, the, op, the 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 real objective is to achieve optionality as early as you can, and I don't think enough people think that way, but putting that aside, you know, I think that even you no know, it feels like just the act of not bringing in income, regardless of how much you might have, is very uncomfortable. When all you start to see are outflows, and I I, I know that you uh, have have talked about that too. It's really hard to to get used to. You feel a guilt about it, and you know it sort of makes you feel like you're you're useless in society or whatever it is. But I've, I've just had to make. Make peace with that. Although I would say, of all of those fears that is recurring the most, that one is, it feels very uncomfortable.
0: And this is a common narrative for all of the guests. And it's not the thing that I hear and that I share from my own story is that even I would, you know, so I would say, okay, I've saved up this much money. And then, and so I should be fine during that period. But then, then I get a consulting gig, and so I start to make more. And then it's like, oh, but then I need this next thing. So there's always, and, and I think I, I attributed it to kind of our evolutionary. I think like in this hierarchy of fears, like not being able to provide is a quasi proxy for like your survive, like your human survival. And I think if you. I think I've been able to strip out the ego part of it. Like clearly like not making income for two years. I've lost right. that race. But I think it really does come down to this survivalist fear, which is still very unrational, irrational. My mantra is you can always get a job. And so when I start going down that path, and uh, I went down that path earlier today, I always say I could I could get a job, and then it kind of like like right. uh, resettles me for that, for a second. That but, works, um,
1: yeah. I, I mean that that seems like a very uh, a very good mantra to have. <laughs> but but it, it's just scary to only see outflows. Yep. No, no matter what.
0: No matter what where your
1: starting point is, and, and
0: that's where it 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 really becomes emotional. Yeah. It, it's not it's not rational. It's not rational. It's not rational. It's not rational. For, so for the privileged kind of uh, like audience that, that we're speaking to. Yes. Tell yeah. us about the other ones.
1: So I think there's a, a broader, a broader category, and it relates to identity. Because if you really want to mess with someone who's just either by choice or not by choice made a change or a pivot— the best way to do that is ask the question, so what do you do?
0: <laughs> I hate and, that question. You know, you, you've been out for a
1: while. I've been out for a while. If you want to mess with me, ask me that question. Because no matter how much I think I'm ready to answer that question, it, it just releases all of these things in my head um, and is, is just profoundly uncomfortable. Um, so I don't ask people that question anymore. I ask people how they spend their time. That is a much easier question and safer question in this day of job insecurity for, for finding out what people do. And you might learn many more interesting things than what they do. But we are so programmed to say, here is who I am. I am this title at this company. You once had a dinner you invited me to where your rule for the dinner was that people could not say where you know what their title was and what their job was. I was delighted because <laughs> then I didn't have to answer that, but I it was very uncomfortable because you you sort of want that as a context and that seems to be a defining element in Japanese culture. You know, you you answer that question as I am this company's person. Like, you know, I am uh, Lisa Shalit of Goldman Sachs. I'm Goldman Sachs as Lisa Shalit or something like that. And so y- you get really caught up in that and not having that identity or that platform that is given to you or a seat that people get yeah. is a source of tremendous discomfort and-, and feeds into these other fears.
0: Why do you think that is, though?
1: I just think that that's the way kind of society is is wired. You know, people expect people to be working. And it's unusual to encounter someone who's not like, you know, look, I've seen stay at home moms struggle with that question too. you know, not not know how to answer. And and the one that pains me the most is when, uh, you know, a stay at home mom will say, well, I do nothing. I was just like, well, that's so not true. But how do you answer? How do you answer that question? Like, of course, you don't do nothing, you do something incredibly important. But I just find that that is a really, really, really uncomfortable question that stokes these fears, right? So you have a fear of missing out because there are kind of two kinds of people you discover. One kind of person sees you for you in the seat you sit in. And another kind of person sees you for who you are, regardless of the seat you sit in. So, Like our parents. <laughs> so I would get, you know, invited to lots of things when I was in, you know, certainly my last role at Goldman, um, whether those would be women's events, whether those would be conferences, stuff like that. And, and you start to really, you know, appreciate most of those events. And all of a sudden most of those invitations go away and you say wait a second what changed you know like i'm still who i am wasn't i invited because i could make a valuable contribution here or or whatever or someone wanted me in this community well it turns out that the stark truth is some people wanted you because you were either validated by goldman or they really were inviting goldman sachs and you happened to be sitting in the seat that brought goldman sachs and so that is hard.
0: You straddle, so you have two boys um, in college, and we'll, well, one, we'll, one's in college. Oh, so now, in college. now they're
1: 16 and 19. So
0: we'll give, uh, we'll shout, shout out Zach because right. uh, he's probably listening. Hi, Zach. And, you know, straddling Gen X and Gen Z, plus you've been very. Inter, uh, you've been kind of on the cutting edge of a lot of the innovation that's happening just generally in the economy. When you speak to, when you think about Zach or, or someone in college now, what do you think are some of the important skills that they should be cultivating, kind of given your vantage point, kind of looking back at your career, but also looking forward?
1: You know, it's funny, I have to roll into that kind of a, a what I call my failed retirement, which was a year working at a millennials-focused media startup, which was a fantastic experience. That was probably the only thing I could have found that was more intense than Goldman Sachs. But, you know, there I was at, at my age amidst uh, a bunch of 20-somethings. I, I wasn't old enough to necessarily be, you know, equated with their parents, but I, I wasn't that far off, and so I was very conscious of not, you know, being mistaken for anyone's mom every day, and I, I you know, that was an interesting way to spend mental energy. But you know I, I, I would I would group those folks in in addition to you know the the data points I get from my own household. I would say that right now my my thinking is that it's very important to get a good, solid foundation on what makes a professional. And be having your first work experience as attractive as those startups may be. And some people will absolutely disagree with me. But having an opportunity to at least spend a couple years in a place that has a really thoughtful, well-invested in training program, I think is one of those things that is just foundational. And so, you know, understanding what leadership is. Understanding how to behave in certain circumstances, being exposed to a a culture and seeing how that shapes different values, learning how to do a presentation, learning how to, you know, use certain public speaking skills, learning how to be part of a team, all of those things, having an opportunity to be taught those is still very, very relevant. And I think a great first investment in your career and I've seen very interestingly, you know, a number of people leave college and go to startups. And what is fascinating about that is that the experience that they get, especially in these early stage, fast growth companies like I experienced, is you may have someone two years out of college whose only job has been this startup. This startup doesn't really have a training program because. They barely have an HR function. They've just grown so fast. They're, they're learning an important resourcefulness type of skill of, of figuring it out as they go along. And I'm not saying they're getting it wrong, but they kind of are doing, you know, testing and learning on a lot of different things. But you'll suddenly have this person two years out of college who's managing 70 people, all of whom it's their first job out of college. So I'm not saying it's the blind leading the blind. But even those people get to a point where, wow, there are some things I wish I'd learned. And odds are they'll figure it out or come up with a new way to do it. But I think that in most cases, you don't necessarily lose traction in your career by having that great experience first in a more established place and then taking those skills wherever you want whether you're going to start your own thing whether you're going to join a thing because it, it it just it just makes you a better professional and those things still matter.
0: So find good training places or don't what's another thing that you would tell the that demographic how to look at their careers.
1: I think my experience has been that I've been so impressed with the hunger and motivation of, you know, people coming out of college to learn and to grow and to seek challenges. I, I, think, I think quite aggressively in a good way and asking for things sometimes in ways that, you know, would surprised me in my old role and surprised me, but with admiration. I'd be thinking, wow, you know, when I was at, at that stage and that age, I would have been inhibited from asking for things. So I, I like that but i think sometimes people get a little carried away and always feel like they need to be growing exponentially at every moment and it's easy to burn through opportunities without really giving them a chance or missing opportunities as we discussed already to you know appreciate a a seat that you might have or a role that you might have as A much more expansive platform than it might initially appear. And sometimes I think speed leads people, the desire for speedy attainment of growth leads people to sometimes underestimate what might also be growth opportunities that just look different and feel different, but are no less important. And so I, I, I sort of would encourage people to be a little bit more patient and creative. Rather than just impatient because they feel like they've tapped out or used up whatever this opportunity might was supposed to teach them or what, or they've surpassed their manager or whatever or whatever it might be, I think you know slow down a little bit and, and make sure you're thinking of all the different ways that you can define growth
0: well this has been a fantastic conversation and I cannot wait to share it with our listeners.
1: Well, thank, thank you very much for this opportunity and, talking and with
0: you, and I have learned so much from myself that like, I can't wait to go through all of my notes.
1: Well, that's very kind of you to say.
0: <laughs> thank you, Lisa. Alright, thanks. Thank you for listening to the Rad Awakenings podcast. For more information on all things Rad, including our weekly email newsletter, please visit us at radreads.co. This podcast is a labor of love and funded by the community's generosity. And if you're interested in supporting us, please join us as a patron by visiting patreon.com/radreads. And of course, leaving a 5-star review always goes a long way. Thanks again and until next time.